Good morning, Rock Harbor Church. Glad to worship with you this morning. I was telling the second service how hard it is to get up after watching the prophecy update. Um, quite a challenge. A lot of stuff going on in the world today, isn't there? Um, last week, uh, I watched online of uh, Pastor Brandon doing a Passover Seder. You guys remember that? Um, my wife and I were missionaries to Jewish people, and we share messages from a Jewish perspective to kind of give an idea of how Jewish people see the Bible. And uh, we, we're missionaries to Jewish people. We worked in LA for three years and in Jerusalem for three years. Now in September, in just a few months from now, we're moving back to Israel uh, to continue our ministry there. I've been coming here for about three years now, uh, just off and on to give messages. But unfortunately, since we're moving, uh, we're not going to be able to come as often. But we do have a table in the back if you want to like keep praying for us or be in contact with us. Or if you're going on the tour in November with Rock Harbor, uh, Lord willing, we'll see you then because uh, we want to meet up with you guys. So this morning, it's going to be like a sequel to what Pastor Brennan did last week on the Passover Seder. Um, I'm going to give a message on the blood, the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit from a Jewish perspective, how it relates to the spring feast. Um, but just to give you a little introduction to kind of prepare your minds for that, uh, I shared this before, but it was about three years ago, so I assume you probably don't remember it by now. Uh, but the Jewish people actually believe in two messiahs. Uh, one of them is called Messiah, son of Joseph. The other one is called Messiah, son of David. And what they mean by that is one is going to represent Joseph's life. Well, he was rejected by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. Uh, he suffered most of his life. And then toward the end of his life, he was raised to the right hand of Pharaoh. Does that ring a bell to you guys? I assume it does. Uh, then they believe another Messiah comes at a different time period who, who will resemble David, David, um, his father where he will establish his throne in Israel, he'll unite, uh, he'll unite the nation, and then he'll rule and reign from Jerusalem, not just temporarily like his father, but forever. Uh, and I hope that rings a bell too, because uh, the Jewish people, while they think it's two different people, really it's just one person in two different time periods. And we know who that person is. In addition to that, I think this is a good segue into the discussion of blood. Um, because and so in synagogue, uh, the difference between synagogue and church, even though they're very similar in how they conduct a service, a rabbi, if he's going to give a message, he has to take one topic that he's going to preach on, but he has to take it from the three parts of the Bible. So their scripture is our Old Testament, word for word. The only difference is, is the ordering. They only have three sections while we have five. So like I said, again, if you're a rabbi, you would have to pull that one concept that you're preaching on from the three parts of their Bible. Does that make sense? Okay. So Matthew chapter 17, uh, Jesus, toward the end of his life, and he's about to offer himself on the cross, he decided he wanted to show his inner three disciples a very important glimpse of his return in glory, which is where he was transfigured before his disciples. And his clothes shone bright as light, and a voice from the clouds spoke concerning the sun. Now, what I want to draw your attention is what the voice says when he speaks concerning the sun. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now, on the surface, it's one sentence, a very powerful sentence. Just imagine the heavens splitting open and God speaking from the clouds. I think anyone in that moment would be trembling and listening. Um, and he says concerning the son that this is the Messiah, the one that we're supposed to look for. 
But if you're a rabbi or if you're a Jewish person who is regularly attending synagogue, it's actually much deeper than that. So this is my beloved son comes from Psalm 2, where it says, I will tell a decree, you are my son, today I have begotten you. With whom I'm well pleased comes from Isaiah 42, which says, my servant in whom my soul delights or is well pleased with. And then lastly, listen to him, only three words in English, but two in Greek and Hebrew, very significant because it comes from the middle of Deuteronomy. So I'm going to mention this again later in the message, that a biblical author, when he wants to say something very important about what he's writing in his book, he usually puts it at the center. Deuteronomy in Greek means uh, second law. Moses is uh, verbalizing the law in the form of a sermon to the Israelites. But right at the center, he says, what this is all about is hinged upon this one verse that says, um, sometime in the future, a prophet like me will rise among your brothers. And when he comes, listen to him. Deuteronomy 18 is from the Torah. Psalm 2 is from the writings. And Isaiah 42 is from the prophets. All of scripture points to one thing, that Jesus is the Messiah. Amen? Amen. I think that's a good segue into the discussion about blood because every one of those passages, because you can give a whole message just on that, on that uh, when the voice speaks from heaven. And uh, every part of that speaks of a different aspect of the Messiah. And one of them is from Isaiah 42, where it says, my servant in whom my soul delights. Well, that servant is the suffering servant. And it starts in Isaiah 42 and it continues and culminates in Isaiah 53, which the Jewish people call the forbidden chapter. So the in synagogue, the whole book of Isaiah is read, but they skip one chapter. Can you guess what chapter that is? Well, 53, it was taken out of synagogue a thousand years ago because the rabbis thought they didn't want to confuse the congregants. Um, it is kind of uh, not a good thing that that happened, but ironically, it is kind of a help for us missionaries because when I read Isaiah 53 with a Jewish person, most likely they haven't read it before. And it really throws them off guard and um, it really speaks to them to recognize that the Messiah had to suffer. About the blood. So last week, you had a Passover Seder here. Did you guys enjoy that? I saw a table set up. I wasn't actually here, but I watched it online. Um, and I saw a table here on stage and you walked you through Passover. And really it's about this Messiah, son of Joseph. It's about the fact that the Messiah had to come and suffer and spill his blood. In Exodus chapter 12, which really is the story of Passover and that God sends 10 plagues on, the, of the Egypt, uh, 10 plagues on Egypt, the, the final one being the slain of the firstborn, which is significant because it points to Jesus Christ. But it's very explicit in Exodus 12. It says, when you have the blood of the spotless and blameless lamb, you're supposed to take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood and paint it over your doorpost and over your lintel. And if you have the blood, then the angel destruction pass over your house. So what I want to do is, um, Pastor Brandon shared that with you last week, but I want to kind of touch on that and give you a little bit more background in Genesis chapter 22. So if you brought your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 22. That would be a great help because it will not be on the screen this morning. Genesis chapter 22. You're probably familiar with the story. It's about the binding of Isaac. The Jewish people call it the 
the akeda, which means the binding. The Jewish people, um, they usually don't know chapter divisions, even though there are chapter divisions in Hebrew, but they, they separate stories by a name that they give to each story. And this one being, like I said, called the binding. So what we're going to see here in Genesis 22 is about the shedding of blood that's connected to Passover. So it says in verse one, after these things, God tested Abraham. That verb's very significant. I'll bring it up here in just a few minutes and talk about it a little bit more. And he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, Hineni, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, which is the first time in scripture that the word love appears in scripture. And go to the land of Moriah, which I'm gonna talk about that name here in just a minute, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. Well, we all know the story. Abraham cleaved wood. He saddled his donkey with his son, Isaac. They didn't really exchange any words yet, but once they're approaching the land of Moriah and the Mount of Moriah, this is what Isaac says to his father in verse seven. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. Now, very significant here, because obviously Isaac is a representation of the Messiah, but he calls Abraham, my father. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. What does Jesus call his father? He calls him my father. Now that's significant in Judaism because it says in John five that when the religious leaders heard Jesus say, my father to God, they picked up stones and began to throw it at him or wanted to anyway. And the reason for that is in Judaism, no Jew ever calls God my father. They only call him our father. And prayers are, are uh, directed in that way because he's the corporate father of the nation. So if you call him my father, it means you have a unique relationship with God. And when Jesus came on the scene, he called God my father. And he said, here I am, my son and Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Notice how it says lamb for a burnt offering. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb. So the verb there provide in Hebrew is the word literally to see, which is significant. I'm gonna point that out or talk about it a little bit more here in just a second. He'll provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And we know the story that Abraham took, brought him to the Mount Moriah, laid out wood, put Isaac on it, bound him and lifted a, a dagger to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord stopped him and he provided a sacrifice in place of Isaac. What did he provide? It, it was a ram actually. It was caught in the thicket by his horns. So notice here that Abraham says that God will provide a lamb for a sacrifice but God provides a ram. So it's not the lamb that God was going to provide. So in verse 14, it says, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will see or provide, which is where we get the name Moriah from, which is where the temple was built. And you could give a whole teaching on that, but just for the sake of time, in Exodus 12, I'll turn your attention here, going back to slide one, uh, in Exodus 12, it says, you know, this is, has to do with Passover. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's the same word used in Genesis 22 that Abraham said in faith, 
God will provide the lamb for sacrifice. This is the lamb that God provided, the Passover lamb without spot or blemish, that if we just take his blood, we paint it over our doorpost and over our lintel, we can have faith that that angel destruction will pass over our house. Jesus was hanging on the cross and it says in the scriptures, in order to fill all things, I thirst. And someone standing nearby grabbed a hyssop branch, very explicit. A lot of things are explicit in scripture and there's a reason why it's there. And he dipped it in gall, which is sour wine in Judaism as a representation of blood. And he touched it to Jesus' lips. And Jesus said the famous words, it is finished. So the last thing that Jesus did on his last breath was to fulfill the role of the Passover lamb. All right, moving on here. So this passage, um, Exodus 40, this is the last passage of the book of Exodus. Um, So after this passage begins the book of Leviticus. So let me just back up here for a second because in 2005, I shared a little bit of my testimony before, um, but just very quickly in 30 seconds, um, I was was an intravenous drug user in 2005. I was in and out of jail, was in a lot of trouble and I was just tired of living that life. And uh, I took a fatal uh, dosage of drugs and I crashed my car into a pole. And uh, I walked, stumbled out of my car and I fell into a ditch that was behind these houses. And I, I passed out and I came to with the helicopter hovering over and they rescued me out of the ditch. And uh, God saved my life that day. Um, I had to go to jail because of that. Um, so the first day I was in jail, two men came up to me and shared the gospel with me. And let me tell you guys, I've never been the same ever since. <laughs> and he's kept me sober for 18 years uh, this April 1st. So praise the Lord for that. I share this with you because when I was in jail, one of the first books I read in the Bible was the book of Leviticus. Uh, I don't really recommend that to new believers. <laughs> But the irony is, is, well, one is that I'm in Jewish ministry, so I share the gospel using the Old Testament with Jewish people. The book of Leviticus is one of my favorite books today. And one of the reasons why is I'm going to show you right now. So in Exodus, how it ends, there's a big problem. And this is the problem that it leaves for the book of Leviticus to answer. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So there's a problem. God shows up in a very powerful way for the Israelites, but the man of God who is selected as a mediator between Israel and God was not even able to enter into God's holy presence. So that's a big problem because he can't really intercede on behalf of the whole nation in a very intimate way until the book of Leviticus is written. Then the book of Numbers, because this comes after Leviticus. So Leviticus is written. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, what's contained in there. But now it picks up in the book of Numbers after Leviticus is finished. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, where? In the tent of meeting. So Exodus ended with Moses not able to enter the tent. But now Leviticus was written for a purpose, accomplished its purpose, and now Moses is in the presence of God. So let's see what was in the book of Leviticus that made it possible for Moses to enter in that tent, made it possible for us as believers 
with confidence to enter God's presence. The book of Leviticus mentions blood 87 times. I was speaking to a rabbi in Jerusalem, which I hope when I go back, I'll see him again and talk to him some more. And I asked him, you know, what is the purpose of sacrifice in the Old Testament? He said, oh, it was just a, a big barbecue. And uh, well, I turned his attention to the book of Leviticus and I said, then why in the Levitical book does it mention blood, the key word in the whole book, 87 times? And he just thought about that and gave no answer. And then one of the passages that we love to share with Jewish people is right in the middle of the book of Leviticus, roughly in the middle, because this is really what it's all about. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. This is called the life for life principle in Judaism. If someone's blood is shed, it, it satisfies the life of another human being. However, the animal sacrifices was an animal on behalf of the nation. So it's not an equivalent death for another life. But nonetheless, there is life in the blood that was shed of those animals. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement, keyword, for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So animals' but blood was shed continually over and over again, really showing that that blood wasn't sufficient in itself to cover the sins, make atonement for the nation. However, there is one who showed up on the scene who shed his blood as a person representing the, uh, the spotless, blameless blood of the lamb, but as a person in which he sacrificed his life for the exchange of for us as human beings to live. And he only had to do it once because it was sufficient in itself for all time. The word atonement, key word in Hebrew, in English, it's at one meant three words squished into one where we become at one with God. But in Hebrew, it's the word kippur, which is used, I think, for the first time in the Bible in Genesis chapter six to, ref um, to refer to God commanded Noah to build an ark and then cover it with atonement, the word kippur which is pitch in that context. It's a tarry substance. You would cover a wooden structure to protect it from rain. Well, uh, what protected Noah and his family? Because they were the only ones lived when the waters of destruction were sent upon the earth and wiped everyone out. It was the pitch that protected the boat from sinking. Now, without it, Noah's family would have been dead along with the rest of the world. But because they had the covering, because they had the atonement, they were saved from the waters of destruction. Jesus said that in the last days, it will be like the days of Noah. Judgment will come just like it did in those days. But there's one thing and only one thing that will protect us from that day. It's the atoning blood of the lamb that Jesus Christ shed on our behalf. Amen? All right, moving on to the resurrection. I'll hide that slide. Don't look. Don't look yet. Turn off. Okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, on Passover, he shed his blood as the Passover lamb. Three days later is another Jewish holiday called the Feast of First Fruits. What did Jesus do three days after he offered himself on the cross? He rose from the dead. Not a coincidence that it fell on another Jewish holiday. Going back to Matthew 17 about how Jesus fulfills all scripture in just the one sentence that God spoke from heaven, showing that everything really in scripture points to him. And I think when you read through the Old Testament, a lot of people, uh, you know, when I finished seminary, I didn't share this in other services, you can drop my Bible on the binding and it would fall open to the New Testament because uh, that's what we study mostly. 
And um, it wasn't until I moved to Israel that I recognized that, you know, the Jewish people only read from the Old Testament. They don't believe in the New. So I had to relearn everything that I learned in seminary and as a Christian, but from an Old Testament perspective. And let me tell you guys, the Old Testament is sufficient in itself to communicate the gospel message to us and to Jewish people. And it's very, very rich. And I'm just trying to give you a little taste of that this morning. So he was raised on the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. Paul is connecting the feast to what Jesus did from rising from the dead. I passed through farmland uh, on the east somewhere, and I was staying at a farmer's house, and a man, a Christian man who was the farmer, was sharing stuff about farming that connects to things that we read in the Bible. And he was saying, do you know what it means when you see the first fruit of your crops? And I said, no, what? And he said, it means that the harvest has come. So when a farmer sees fruit begin to bear, it means that it signals that the harvest is here. Because Jesus rose from the dead, the harvest is in a distant reality. Jesus conquered death. He rose from the dead. He's alive today and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is a hope that's not only a hope that's distant, but it's a living hope that we seek and we realize in Jesus Christ because he rose from the dead. All right, so about the resurrection, um, Hebrews chapter 11. So this is a Jewish, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews was a Jewish person who is writing to a Jewish audience. So he's gonna communicate something very Jewish. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, so this is referring to the Akeda, the Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac, and notice how it uses the, word, the verb that I told you to pay attention to where it says that Abraham was tested. So the rabbis believe that Abraham was tested 10 times. If you look at the Abrahamic narrative, you'll count that there was 10 tests of Abraham. So why is that significant? Well, for two reasons. One is that the 10th and final test is always the most significant test in scripture. And secondly, is that there's many other 10s in scripture. For example, there were 10 plagues that came on the Egyptians, but they hardened their heart every time uh, up until the last one, the slain of the firstborn being the most significant one. God shows no partiality. And he says to the Israelites, if you test me these 10 times, something of that nature, I will send you the same plagues that I sent on the Egyptians, if you don't believe. And uh, so the, the same plagues fell on the, on, on the Israelites because they didn't believe. God shows no partiality. So if God tested the Egyptians with the representation of the world and the Israelites, well, it makes sense that if he shows no partiality that he'll also test Christians in the same way. Matthew 24, uh, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, when will these things be? Referring to when will be the time of your arrival when you come back? And he, he doesn't tell them when exactly, but he gives them 10 signs of his return. If you count in Matthew 24, the 10 signs, there's 10 of them the 10th being the most significant. So back to Abraham, he was tested 10 times and the 10th and final being the most significant was the slain of his firstborn. But look where he puts the object of his faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up, his, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Continuing on, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him 
back. So in Judaism, according to Jewish tradition, that rabbis believe that in Genesis 22, Isaac truly did die, but God brought him back to life. So obviously that isn't true because we believe scripture on what it says on how that story took place. However, it's important nonetheless because this Jewish person is speaking to a Jewish audience that would be familiar with that kind of teaching, recognizing that there is some kind of symbolism going on there, that Isaac's slaying was a symbol of Abraham actually receiving him back. And so symbolically, it refers to the resurrection. So the point of what I'm saying this, what I'm trying to say is that Abraham was tested 10 times, the last one being the most significant. And how he passed the test was he had his heart focused on one thing, which was the resurrection of his son, that God would keep his promise through his son, his firstborn son. In the same respect, where we should put the object of our faith is in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And someday, hopefully soon, all of us in a like manner will be raised to new life. Amen. Moving on to the Holy Spirit, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he said, not too many days from now, I'll send my Holy Spirit who will be with you and in you forever. He sends him exactly 50 days later on another Jewish holiday called Shavuot, which in Greek is Pentecost, which means 50. So why did God send the Holy Spirit on this particular day? Well, it's because of what Jewish people commemorate on that holiday. On that holiday, the Jewish people commemorate when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Well, the correlation is, is that God comes down in a powerful way in fire on Mount Sinai. Then in Acts chapter 2, God comes down in the form of the Holy Spirit in fire, tongues of fire. But there is a contrast and an important one for Christians to recognize. One is under the covenant of the law. The other one is under the covenant of grace in the blood of the Messiah. In Exodus 19, Moses receives the two tablets. He sees in the base of the mountain a golden calf being made and he throws down the tablets in disgust. We all know the story. He runs down off the mountain. He takes the, um, the golden calf and smashes it into powder and makes everyone drink it. And I don't know why, but he did. Uh, but what's interesting is what comes after that. Uh, a tribe, the, Le- the Levitical tribe rises up and slays 3,000 men because of their idolatry. Now fast forward to Acts chapter two, how many men were saved? 3,000. No coincidence. And one shows you that on our own merit, which is under the covenant of the law, 3,000 men died, but under the merit of Jesus Christ and the shedding of the spotless and blameless lamb and the fact that he conquered death by raising as a feast of first fruits. Through him, 3,000 men live. And that's what it's about is knowing Jesus Christ is a life that's not just temporary, but it's forever in the presence of God. And that's what we all look forward to as Christians. Something I want to show you is in um, Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon. He quotes from a passage. He uses this as his, as his text um, from Joel chapter 2. It says, in the last days, um, so when the Holy Spirit came and marked our hearts and filled us anew, it signaled the last days. It shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days are pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So in the Old Testament era, the only people who received the Holy Spirit were the priests, the prophets, and kings. So God was going to do something very miraculous in Acts chapter 2, according to the promise he made in Joel, is that he was going to give that Holy Spirit that was reserved only for the elite class, but gave it to everybody. And not just temporarily, but forever. It is a mark of our, it is a guarantee of our inheritance, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. So the context of Joel chapter 2, it's always good when you hear or read a passage in the New Testament that's quoted from the Old to go back and then read the context in which it was derived from. So Joel chapter 2 is about the harvest season. Uh, Very significant because it speaks about uh, something very important in the harvest. So in Israel, they have something called the early rains and latter rains. You probably heard of that before. But the meaning of them, the purpose of those two rains is significant for this passage about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The early rains is to break up the fallow ground that allows seeds to be planted so that a crop can grow, which is what happened in Acts chapter two with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was planted in our hearts. We received the word, the seed of the word of God, and it produced a crop. But then it says that there's a latter rain that comes, which is also connected to this passage in Joel chapter two. And the latter rain served a different purpose than the first, it was meant to mature the crop in order for it to bear fruit so they can be prepared for the final harvest. So I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. And the reason for that, because it's symbolism and its connection to the Holy Spirit. God did send the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two. If we only believed, received the word, we're marked with that Holy Spirit. However, toward the end of days and the last of last days, there will be a latter rain that comes. And this rain will serve a specific purpose that will be given by the Holy Spirit that matures the crop and prepares it for the final harvest. No matter what kinds of things we see on the news, of all the evil that's taken place in this country and around the world, our hope is set on Jesus Christ. God will send his Holy Spirit in a powerful way. It will prepare all of us in this room who believe in Jesus Christ and will mature us Help us to bear fruit so that we can proclaim his name to the world until that day that we see him come through the clouds. I don't know about you, but I long for that day. How about you? Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 through 14. From verse three to verse 14 is one sentence in Greek. So 11 verses, one sentence. It's the largest sentence or the longest sentence in the whole Bible. And uh, if you haven't guessed by now, I am a, a, a language nerd. Uh, so <laughs> I'm proud of it because I really like all this stuff. I hope you guys do too. Uh, but th- I'm not just sharing that with you for Bible trivia. I'm sharing it for you because of uh, the meaning of this passage that I'm about to share with you. This is the last sentence or the last kind of uh thing that he shares in that sentence. And that whole sentence has to do with the grace that we have as Christians when we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And the last thing that he says, he doesn't want to stop the flow with a period. So he shows one thing after another that we have in Christ. And this is the last thing he says in the longest sentence in the whole Bible. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, 
at that moment, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So in the ancient world, if you're sealed with something, the imagery is, is if you take a letter, you roll it up, you melt wax and you seal it, you impress it. Legally in the ancient world, that meant when you sealed something, that meant that what the contents are guaranteed. So taking that imagery, this is what Paul says. When you are sealed or marked with the Holy Spirit, who is the what? Guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Because when we believe in what Jesus did on the cross and the fact that he conquered death by raising from the dead, and when we believe in that truth, just as God has promised in his scripture, we're marked with the Holy Spirit. There will come a judgment at the end of days, and it says that everyone will stand before the judgment. Doesn't matter if you're Christian, doesn't matter what language you speak, what culture you're from, what sins you've committed in your past, what accomplishments you made in your life, everyone will stand before the judgment. There's only one thing that will protect you on that day, that God will see the seal of the Holy Spirit on your hearts. And if he does, that angel of destruction will pass over you. And that judgment, well, it says in Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a grace we have in Jesus Christ. So let me just uh, sum up everything with this. There is a rabbi who is a contemporary of Jesus. He lived during the first century. Uh, We have some of his writings still today. And uh, one of his disciples asked him, uh, if you could boil everything down in scripture into one thing, what would that one thing be that God wants from us? He answered it very interestingly because he could have just gave a quick answer, but he explained it in this way. He said there's 613 commands in the Torah. And then in Psalm 15, there's 11. And then in Isaiah 33, there's six. And then in Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with a God. And then lastly, he says, everything boils down to this one verse. Habakkuk 2, 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray.